Despite the brokenness, the sin, and the corruption in this world, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of sin, and there's a lot of corruption in this world, in the workplace, where you were. Despite all that, we really, really want to live happy and joyful lives, don't we? We want to rejoice in the midst of suffering, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Paul says. The question, the age-old question is how? How do you live a joyful and truly happy life with all the brokenness, sin, and corruption in this world? How can we rejoice when there is self-centeredness among our leaders in our society, in our cities, in our nation, and in our world? How can we rejoice when there's not only moral corruption there, even in the churches, there's moral corruption and hypocrisy? In our church, in my own heart. How can we rejoice and live happily with moral corruption in our churches? Well, some might say, you know what? We just, only God can judge in the end. So what we do is we just wait for God to judge us. That's true. We should wait for God to judge. Only God can finally judge. That is true. But what if God judges our loved ones? Should we wait for that? Just kind of passively wait for our loved ones, our family members, our friends, our fellow church members to sin into damnation? Should we just wait and say, well, only God can judge us, so just let them go to hell? Is that what we should do? Is that how we live the happy, joyful life? doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound right. What if God judges our loved ones? What if God judges us? What if we're the ones who are going to be judged? Well, there's this dilemma. How do we live a happy, joyful life in a corrupt world, corrupt churches, sin in all churches, even true churches? How do we live joyfully? God guides us in this dilemma through the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah felt and dealt with the same issues as we deal with. Now, Zephaniah served, it says here, look at verse 1 again, the last phrase of Zephaniah 1.1, he served in the days of who? Of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. So he tells us which presidential reign, which kingly reign he was under, and that was Josiah. Josiah was one of the two most righteous kings in Judah. Hezekiah was one, and then he had one of the most wicked kings as his son, reigned for a really long time in Judah, then another son, and then Josiah. Josiah and Hezekiah were the ones who cleaned house. They cleaned up all the idolatry and corruption and hypocrisy among the leaders and the institutions of Israel. That's what, Zeph that's what Josiah did. But so, so Zephaniah is ministering during one of the best kings in Israel. What a great time to live in Israel, right? When the king is sold out to God, he's sold out to his word, he doesn't compromise. He's not self-centered. He looks at the Bible and he tries to follow it to the T because he trusts that God's word is for his good and for his nation's good and for his family's good. And so he lives that way. What a blessing to sit under just and righteous rulers. That is amazing. And that's a blessing that, that Zephaniah got to live during this time of reform. Josiah was breaking down idols and high places. He was cleaning house. And that was all right and good on the outside. But Judah would still fall a generation or two later. God even said to Josiah, for Josiah's sake, I will not send Judah into exile now. But he can't stop it. Judgment is going to fall in Judah. 
so, Josiah, so Zephaniah is saying, great, we have a great king, but is our nation great? Is our society great? Is our society going to be safe from judgment? No. Exile's coming because there's still corruption here as people still idolatrously and ignorantly march toward judgment and exile. So here's the main goal of this passage, I think, I believe, and the main goal of the sermon. Brothers and sisters, Christians, even non-Christians, here's God's call to you. Joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation. Joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation. How do we joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation? Well, by enacting these four I'm going to call them successive habits because there, there is a progress to them, but you keep doing all four. But there's four steps, four successive habits that we need to keep doing to, to joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation. Here, are, here they are, okay? Here are the four. Number one, quiet your soul. Quiet your soul before God. Number two, seek God together. Seek God together. Third, Wait. Wait for God. And number four, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. So quiet your soul, seek God together, wait for God, and rejoice in hope. These are four successive habits to rejoice or to joyfully prepare for God's coming judgment and salvation. So let's start working our way through this ancient book written at least 612 612 B.C. is when Josiah's reign ended, so 600 years before Jesus came at the very least, but probably several years before that because Nineveh and Assyria is still powerful, it seems. All right, so number one, quiet yourself. Quiet yourself before God. Why? This is all of chapter one, verses two through 18. What happens? So the, the main answer, look at verse seven. Here's the command, okay? The first command is verse seven. Be silent in the presence of the Lord Yahweh. When you see capital L-O-R-D, the O-R-D capital, or G-O-D, see the O-D is capitalized, and you can tell by the D. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. That is Yahweh, God's personal name, his covenant name, for the promise he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would bless all the nations through Abraham's family, and he would curse all of those who curse Abraham's family. Okay? So that, and that, that's, that thing I just said right there is very important. That's Genesis 12, 3. That's going to come in handy when we get to chapter 2. Okay, so here is the command. Be silent in the presence of the Lord Yahweh. Why? Why? Here, there's a reason here. What's the reason? For the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord is what? It's near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. It's the countdown. It's like a 10-second countdown or a one-minute countdown. You know, the, the big New York... Uh, apple that's going to drop at, at, um, at midnight. It's like everything's prepared. Here it is. He's prepared his guests. The day of the Lord is about to drop. It's about to come. So therefore, what should you do? What's the command of verse 7? To be what? Be silent. Quiet yourself in the presence of the Lord Yahweh. Why? So that's the main reason. The main reason to quiet yourself is because the day of the Lord is about to happen. But why? What is the day of the Lord? What happens on the day of the Lord that should make us quiet ourselves before the Lord? There's two things that are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is God is going to destroy the whole world. Look at chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Listen to this claim of what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. I, God, will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals 
I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Can you think of a time where God almost did this? Cutting off animals and humanity almost completely? When? Noah and the, and the ark, right? The flood. The flood is, is where it's like a total global destruction of everyone and everything. Even if you look at verses, verse 3 closely, it actually goes backwards from creation. I will sweep away people, animals, birds, and then fish. When God created, he created the fish, then the birds, then the animals, then the people. So God is almost rewinding, reversing the curse, or not reversing the curse, reversing creation, actually, reversing the blessing of creation and causing a decreation on the universe. I created this world, and on the day of the Lord, I'm going to destroy this world and all of humanity. That's big. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And then you go to verse 14. It picks up again in verse 14. The great day of the Lord Yahweh is what? It's near. Now listen to how he describes it here. It's near and rapidly approaching. It's almost here. It's almost time. Listen. There's the quieting yourself before the Lord. Quieting yourself means listening carefully and not speaking. Being quick to hear. Slow to speak. Listen. The day of the Lord then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath. Listen to the description here in verse 15. This is very important, 15 and 16. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. Okay, so God is going from this great description of decreation and cosmic flood for the whole globe to a battle cry of an army invading. See, see how he transitions? From this big global judgment to the battle cry of an army invading. Invading what? Read on in verse 17. So, so there's this army thing, and we're going to talk about what that means in a second. I will bring distress on mankind. Now it goes back to this global thing. And they will walk like the blind because they have what? Why does God bring judgment? They have what? Sinned against the Lord Yahweh, the covenant God, the creator of the universe. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of Yahweh's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. No one gets away from judgment. That's what Peter prayed. No sin escapes the eye of God. God will justly judge. All the inhabitants, every single human will be judged by God. No exceptions. God will bring fire and destroy the world. It is futile to resist God. This day of the Lord is described before, before um, Zephaniah, Isaiah described it, Amos described it, Joel described it, and then now here's Zephaniah is describing the day of the Lord, and then Jeremiah after, after uh, Zephaniah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel will also pick up on this theme of the day of the Lord. Surely though, God, you don't mean everybody, not, I mean, even in the flood, was everybody swept away in the flood? No, how many survived the flood? Eight people survived the flood, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. 
So PJ, God doesn't mean everybody. I mean, not everyone was flooded. Surely it doesn't mean everyone. Surely God's people would be okay. Surely those who are in the Israelic covenant, those who are God's people, where he will be our God and we will be his people, surely we will be delivered from judgment, right? Right, Zephaniah? Well, go back to verse 4. Look at Zephaniah 1.4. I will stretch out my hand against who? Judah. Now, he already did against Israel. They're already exiled. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. There's, a, there's our idolatry. The names of the pagan priests along with, their, with the priests. I'm going to cut off the, idol, the idolaters, verse 5. Those who bow in worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky. Now listen to this because this happens in the church as well. Those who bow and pledge loyalty to who? The Lord. But also pledge loyalty to who? Milcom. And to those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. God will judge all the inhabitants of the earth. But what about Judah? What about Jerusalem, the city of God? What happens to all their inhabitants? Guess what? They will be judged too. Why? Because though they say, I love the Lord, they also love Milcom, another God, an idol. They, they say they love Jesus. They, they pledge and bow loyalty to God, loyalty to God. And yet look at verse six. They turn back from following the Lord. They confess with their mouths. They don't believe in their hearts. Or to use James' words, their faith without, is without works. And so their faith is what? It's dead. It's dead. And it's damning. And how do you know that they really don't seek the Lord? Look at verse 6. They do not seek the Lord or what? What do they not do? They don't seek the Lord or what? Inquire of him. What does it mean to inquire of the Lord? This is important for our souls. What does it mean to inquire of the Lord? To ask God for help. To ask God for guidance. Sometimes we don't ask God for help. Or we ask God for help, but then when God says he brings a church family, if you're a church member here, and he brings a church family around, you don't ask them for help. And guess what? If you're not asking them for help, you might say you're asking God for help, but are you really asking God for help? Not when you don't want help. Not when you know it actually starts to meddle in your lives, right? If I ask God for help, I, Lord, help me, but don't help me in a way that's going to expose my sin to my church family. But do you want help with fighting your sin or not? Are you really inquiring of the Lord or are you just saying it? Are you just bowing and pledging loyalty? But there's no real change. You don't really believe and really want God's help through his people. You just want it by mouth. And God says judgment is coming to you as well. All inhabitants, because they're hypocrites. They are hypocrites. In verses 8 and 9, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the kings, the, the, the sons of, of David, the king's sons, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. Verse 9, on that day I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. Even the leaders and the, the, the royal palace is deceitful and violent. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, there will be an outcry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second district that's in Jerusalem, and a loud crashing from the hills. Here's another command. Wail, cry, mourn, you residents of the hollow, for all the merchants will be silenced. All those loaded with silver will be cut off. And, that time I will, and at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. That's what they say. The Lord won't do good or evil. 
I'm not saying the Lord's going to do good, but I'm not saying the Lord's going to do evil either. I'm kind of neutral. You know anyone who tries to be neutral with God? I'm not for him. I'm not against him. I'm just kind of, I'm kind of on the side. Well, what happens to them? It says in verse 12, God will punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will not do good or evil. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses are ruined. They will build houses but never live in them, plant vineyards but never drink their wine. They will suffer. There is no neutrality with the Lord Jesus. There's no neutrality with God. You're either against him or for him. And God will punish those who say they're for him but actually aren't. Now, the structure here puts Judah in the middle and on both sides. I read you first the, the bookends. The world will be judged, but in the middle, Judah will be judged. So there's an emphasis here on Judah being judged. Those who are part of the covenant community. Here, it's the old Israelic covenant community. Now, we're in the new Israelic covenant community. But whether old, old Israelic covenant here, 600 years before Jesus, or after Christ died and rose, new Israelic covenant, local church, the, the warning and the command is all the same. Check yourself. Are you just saying it with your mouth, but you don't really believe it in your heart or live it with your lives? Are you really inquiring of the Lord? Now, the New Testament describes this day of the Lord, so turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm reading 13 verses here, so you might as well turn there. But if not, you can still listen. Don't worry, it's at the very end, right next to Revelation. Just go to Revelation and go back a few books. You'll see Jude, and then you'll see three Johns there, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then you'll see 2 Peter right, right before that. Okay, So 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. You could just listen if you want. Here's the day of the Lord described. Here's the final judgment. How is the world going to end? Here's what God's word says. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires saying where is his coming that he promised even if even since our ancestors fell asleep all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation jesus isn't coming they deliberately overlooked this by the word of god the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are stored up for what? For fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Judgment, everything's gonna be exposed, all your works. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the end of the world, this old earth. God will come, he'll burn it all up, 
in one sense, he'll renew the world to the new earth, but no human will escape God's judgment. Everything will be exposed in the end. What about the church? What about the true church? Does God bring judgment to the church? Let me just tell you what God promised to do in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's what, he, here's what Jesus threatens the local churches in Revelation 2 and 3. For those who sin and compromise and cower and don't repent. He will remove their lampstand. He will fight against the church with the sword of his mouth. He will throw them onto a sickbed with great affliction. He will strike their children dead. He will come like a thief in judgment. He will vomit the cowardly and compromising so-called Christians and churches out of his mouth. That's the churches. Judah. Christian churches. Baptist churches. That's what Jesus will do in the judgment to come. Churches, too, will not avoid the judgment. So point one was quiet your soul. What does that mean? Let this judgment sink in. You might be judged. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you really are a Christian, whether you really are in the faith. So examine yourself. Don't move over your, don't be so confident in your Christianity that you, you move over it too quickly. Let judgment sink in. If you're not a Christian, let judgment sink in. Don't turn your phone on to look at the next social media update. Just sit quietly and let the fact that you will die and God will judge you for everything you've ever done, let that sink in. The devil tries to distract us in this Disneyland of Los Angeles so that you don't realize the doom that is right around the corner. But it's there. If you don't let it sink in, you won't sober up. You will be judged by God, and you will, if you're apart from Christ, you will go to the lake of fire forever for your sins. It's not maybe, it's certain. I never, well, I, I, don't say, I shouldn't say never because I was this week. I sometimes get amazed, I shouldn't get amazed, that sometimes you tell people when you share the gospel with them that they're going to hell if they don't trust in Christ, and then, they, they, then you ask them again in the future, and they forget that they're, they're actually going there. They're like, are you going to heaven or hell? They're like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm like, you know what the Bible says. I told you five times. You don't let it sink in. But you got to let it sink in. It's true. It's true. It's coming. It's around the corner. Here's some good news. God warns us because he loves us. God speaks because he loves us. God even commands us to be silent so that we could actually have a better chance at hearing what he's saying to us to let the words of judgment sink in. So brothers, sisters, friends who are not Christian, joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation by waiting. Uh, not by waiting, I'm sorry, by quieting yourself and listening. That's the first one. What's the second one? Let's go to chapter two. Go back to Zephaniah chapter two, verses one through three. We have the second habit here, the second step of joyfully preparing for judgment. Gather, here it is, here's the command. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decrees take effect. And the day passes like chaff before the burning of Yahweh's anger overtakes you, before the day of Yahweh's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So here's the key. Here's the way to be concealed from the judgment. Perhaps you'll be concealed. If you, if you do what? Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek humility, but, but look at the command in verse one, because we need one more word in, in seeking the Lord. Gather yourselves what? 
together. Seek the Lord together. No Rambo, one-man army Christianity. That's not what the Bible talks about. It's just me and Jesus. That's not what the command is here. Gather yourselves what? Together. Seek the Lord together. Because when you seek the Lord by yourself, you might think you're seeking the Lord and you're actually seeking the devil. And you don't even realize it. Because no one checks you because you don't talk to anybody. Gather yourselves together. That's what, humili- that's what seeking humility means. That you don't trust yourself by yourself to seek God. Are you overconfident in your self-assessment? Do you really not need other Christians in your life? Why do we live that way? Seek God together. Now, why? We don't have to spend a long time here because we spent it in the previous thing. It's because God judges everybody. And so we're just going to read the passage here. God is judging all of the neighbors of Israel. So let's just read through. Here's why you need to seek God together. Because of the day of the Lord. Because judgment's coming. So look at chapter 2, verse 4. I'm just going to read through here. Here's the judgment against the Philistines. You guys know Goliath was from Philistia. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Those are cities in um, Philistia. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast. Nation of the Cherethites, that's the Philistines. The word of Yahweh is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is what? No one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastlands will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. So all your coastlands that you have, it's not going to belong to you anymore. It's going to belong to who? The remnant of the house of Judah, the true covenant people of God, not the external covenant people of God, but those who are truly saved. The remnant of the house of Judah, they will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening and among the houses of Ashkelon for the Lord, their God, will return to them and restore their fortunes. God's people will be restored. You Philistines, guess what? You will not escape. You will have judgment. So gather yourselves together and seek the Lord and seek righteousness and seek humility. Next, uh, Moab, verse eight. I, I have heard the taunting of Moab. And the insults of the Ammonites. This is to the southeast of Israel. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites. These are the sons and grandsons of Lot, by the way, if you remember that story, that um, perverted story in Genesis 19. I've heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people. Who's God's people? Judah. They have taunted God's people and threatened their territory. They threatened God's people. Does God like that? Does God take it? Does God not mind if you hold his people in contempt? What did God say? Those who bless you to Abraham and his seed. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. Here they are threatening Judah. You curse God's people. And now that would be the people of Christ the new, under the new Israeli covenant. But you curse God's people under, under the old Israeli covenant. Here's what happens. Verse 9. Therefore, God says, as I live, this is the declaration of Yahweh of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. They were burned up from heaven. Fire from heaven fell on these cities. That's what's going to happen to Moab and Ammon. A place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people, here's the restoration again of God's people under the new Israel covenant. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of, of Yahweh of armies. Just like Goliath acted arrogantly 
And David said, how dare you taunt the armies of the living God? Ammon and Moab taunted and acted arrogantly against God's armies. Verse 11, the Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow in worship to him, each in its own place. So here you have Moab and Ammon cursed because they hold in contempt the people of God here under the old Israelite covenant. What does that mean today? What is your attitude towards God's people, gospel-preaching churches? If you hold them in contempt, you curse God's people, the people of Jesus Christ today, you will be cursed. Because you can't have Jesus and curse his people. If you bless God's people, that means you're blessing Christ, which means you're believing in Christ. But if you curse and you hold in contempt God's people, the local church, you hold God in contempt, and God will hold you in contempt on judgment day. Be careful how you deal with and how you interact with not just this local church, especially this local church if you're a member here, but even other local churches, even other denominations. If you say that they're not truly Christian because they're not Southern Baptist, you have to wonder, are you holding Christ in contempt? Are you holding in contempt other people who are God's people? You've got to be very careful how we deal with God's people. So that's the second group. The third group who gets judged is Cush, and they only get one verse, verse 12. You Cushites, maybe those in Egypt, you will also be slain by the sword. Okay? That's another reason why you need to gather together and seek righteousness and seek humility and seek God together because Cush will be slain by the sword. And then lastly, Assyria, the big world superpower at the time. Verse 13. God will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. That would be like God saying he's going to destroy the United States of America today the, the, or China, the global superpowers. God will destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it. Every kind of wild animal, both eagle, owls, and herons, will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold. For he will expose the cedar work. He's going to expose their palaces. It's going to be run through. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that thinks to herself, this is Nineveh now, that thinks to herself, I exist. I'm the great city and there's no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. New York, New York. Have you ever been in Times Square? Imagine, imagine Times Square completely desolate. All the buildings run down with no one living in any places in New York, in Manhattan. Just run down, devastated by war desolation, and all you have are some random, um, random stray animals that kind of wander through the materials there in Manhattan. It's unthinkable. It's hard to imagine it. That's Nineveh. And God says, the day of the Lord is coming. You will be destroyed. So why should we seek God together? Because God judges the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Cush, Assyria. So if you're to the non-Christian world and to America, to Los Angeles, to Bellflower. Here's God's word for you. Judgment is coming for you as a society. There is no such thing as a Christian society apart from trusting in Jesus Christ. And that happens personally and individually. And then it gathers together in a society called the church. That's the only holy nation this side of the cross. God, judgment is coming. When Christ comes, judgment will come on all nations and societies. Judgment is coming for your rejection of Christ and his people, the church. You might say, why is God so judgmental? 
I mean, shouldn't he just let everyone be? I mean, how do you know you're right and, and others are wrong? Why can God say others are wrong? Why would you Christians say that other people are wrong? Why do you have to be so judgmental? It's kind of arrogant to think that you guys are the only ones who are right. If you're not a Christian and you think that way, I could appreciate that sentiment. This is an understandable question at first. But on further reflection, if you say, it's unfair for God to judge us and for Christians to judge us, they're so judgmental. They shouldn't be able to do that. That's wrong for them to do that. My question back is, isn't it un- if that's unfair, then is it unfair for you to judge God for being judgmental? Is it unfair for you to judge Christians for reading the Bible and making judgments based on the Bible? Furthermore, isn't it hypocritical to say God can't judge others for saying that they're wrong, but we can easily say that the Bible is wrong and people who, who quote the Bible are wrong for saying that other people are wrong? Isn't that hypocritical? You can't say anybody's wrong. You're wrong for saying other people are wrong. Well, you're saying that somebody's wrong. Are you not wrong? Judgment, in other words, judgment is unavoidable. We all make judgments. No one cannot make a judgment. Everyone makes judgments, and our judgments all have consequences. The only question is, whose judgment is right? Which judgment is true? Which judgment will stand on God's final day of judgment? That's the question. For the broader reforming universal church, gospel church, expect suffering and opposition until Christ returns. Don't be surprised. People will hold God's people in contempt. If you're not a Christian, repent from your sins and seek the Lord. He can and will help you. He will forgive you of your sins through Jesus. God will do that. God will forgive you through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, understand this. God is holy. This is the gospel. That God is holy and he made you. That you are a sinner. And you deserve damnation. We all do for our sins. But God loved us. He so loved the world. He loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. He sent Jesus into the world to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross for your sins and rise from the dead. So that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, Christ's death counts for you. Him being judged on the cross counts for you. And his resurrection counts for you. You get to receive his death and resurrection if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. So I plead with you, call on the Lord to save you this morning. He will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're a church family here, what does it mean for you as a, as a, as a Christian? Gather with other people who seek God. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Don't neglect gathering together, it says, as some are in the habit of doing. But encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. We have members in our church who make it a habit to miss Sunday gatherings. And you know what we say in our membership considered classes and we say it in the membership interview? I say this to every member who's, been, who's joined ever since I got here. And I'll remind you here because we might even have a case this coming next members meeting. I say to everyone who joins this church when I do the membership interview, do you understand that if you stop attending our church habitually for three to six months, we will move toward excommunication? So everyone who's joined this church after me, you're all accountable for that. Anyone who's joined this church before me, and that's a lot, and there's still some on our membership role, they're not accountable to that. At least I haven't had the privilege and responsibility of teaching them. But everyone who's joined after me, you need to understand and be careful to not build a habit of not gathering with God's people. Here it says, gather yourselves together and seek God humbly together. If you're discouraged and weak in your Christian life right now, don't isolate yourself. Share your burden with others. 
If you're stumbling and stubborn in your sin, confess your sin to someone today and get gospelized. Church family, let's seek God humbly and righteously together. Let's not be arrogant and proud. Brian Farrell led us in a prayer of confession. That's not just a ritual we do. We need to seek God humbly. We have sinned, haven't we? We need to confess some real sins that we've really committed this week in our lives. We need to seek God humbly. But then we go to God boldly, don't we? Because Christ is our great high priest who sympathizes with us. And we go, we, we go to God so we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So God not only calls us to seek him, here's the good news, here's some really good news. Not only does God call us to seek him, if you're a Christian, you know why you're a Christian? Because God gave you the power to seek him. God gave you the power to seek him. God enabled you and gave you the gift of seeking him. Okay, so joyfully prepare for God's judgment. How? By quieting your soul. Secondly, by seeking God together. And third, by waiting on the Lord. Let's go to chapter three. Last chapter here. Waiting on the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means to patiently, persistently hope for salvation through judgment. Here's what one commentator said. Waiting for God's vindication is neither desirable nor easy. Yet waiting on God is the only choice for those who love him and who seek to live according to his commands. Patience is not natural either for the wicked or the righteous, but God called on his people to wait for him. And that's what he does in verse 8. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. There's the command. You see it? Therefore, what does God say? Wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until I rise up, for plunder for my decision is to gather the nations to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them all my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy so wait for god because judgment is coming god will judge his all peoples that's what it says in verse 8 why else should we wait for the lord we should wait for the lord because god's people are are, are audaciously disobedient god won't god won't wait forever and hold back his anger forever from the church he will, he will judge people in churches too. Look at, look at chapter three, verse one. Here's what he's talking about to his covenant people. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed. You could say this about churches today. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. The leaders in the covenant community, the princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to the instruction. The Lord, the righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. Even though God is working in the midst of his covenant community, they're still sinning. They have bad leaders, bad princes, bad priests, bad prophets. Are there bad leaders in churches today? Is that possible? You can have corrupt, sinful, evil, non-Christian leaders, wolves, preying on God's people in churches. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That's why we have congregational meetings. That's why we have you vet the pastors. And even then, even if someone gets confirmed as a pastor or a deacon or deaconess, they're still accountable to the church until they die. They have to be. Because if you get bad leaders leading the covenant community, and the church passively receives bad leadership, the church will die. The church will die. Churches need to hold their leaders accountable. Not in suspicion if their leaders are doing well, but still hold them really accountable. And leaders not, need to not be offended that they're being held accountable. 
that people ask how they're doing. We need to be held accountable. And here the leaders weren't, and it ran, it, it was terrible for God's covenant people. Reading on verse 6, what else happened to this covenant nation? God says, I have cut off nations, their corner towers are destroyed, I have laid waste to their streets, and no one, with no one to pass through, their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. So Israel, or Judah, you've seen God judge all of these nations. If you see, God's, if you see God judge other people, what should that do to you? It should, it should turn you up, right? It should, it should sober you up. It should get your attention, right? Did it get their attention? So they saw all these nations being judged. What happened to them in verse seven? I thought you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on what I had allocated to her. So did they listen? Look at verse seven. However, they became what? More corrupt in all their actions. God judges the nations. It should be a warning to them. You know what? Instead, what it did to them? God judged them, but he's not judging me. I could get away with this. It became, a, it became fuel for their fire of disobedience rather than a warning for obedience. It was so backwards. They take God's grace for granted. God's grace became a license to sin rather than a license to pursue joy in God forever. That's what happens to covenant communities. And that's why um, God is saying to the faithful Christians, like back here to the faithful remnant, wait for me. I see it. I see things are falling apart in your church. I see things falling apart in your nation. I see things falling apart among those who say they're God's people. Wait for me, I'm coming. I will bring judgment. I see what, what other people might not see. I see the people who are abusing their power. They will be judged. Wait for me, Bethany Baptist Church. Wait for me, faithful Christian. Look at verses 11 through 13. Here's another reason to wait. Here's a good reason, not just because judgment's coming, but so is restoration. For if you wait for me, after this judgment, I will then restore pure speech to the peoples. That's weird, peoples. Not people, not just, Jew, not just the Jews, not just the Israelites, peoples. Other ethnic people groups. God will restore other ethnic people groups. Raise your hand here if you know in your ancestry that you have no Jewish blood. Raise your hand if you have no Jewish blood as far as you can tell in your, in your ethnic ancestral background. Raise it high, come on, raise it up. Okay, this applies to you, okay? Look at this verse again because this is you. I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, not just Israel, but to the other ethnic peoples, people like PJ and like you, if you have no uh, Jewish blood in you. Because grace doesn't come by blood. It comes by, uh, in verse 9, all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single person. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people will bring an offering to me. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For then I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Today that will be the Lord Jesus. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. They won't be hypocrites anymore. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes, it's going to be sweet. There'll be no more sin, no more curse, no more selfishness. God will judge all of his enemies and all the fake Christians as well. And all those who oppose Christ and all of God's people will be purified. And we will live with him in the new earth forever and ever and ever. So God says, wait for me. Judgment is coming, but so is final salvation. 
We know more from the New Testament. We'll get resurrected bodies. We'll live in a resurrected, in a sense, renewed earth to enjoy God forever and ever. So here's some application before we go to our last point. Christian, don't insist on your own timing of when God should act in your life. I know life is hard, and sometimes you just can't wait for the next big blessing from God. But so much of the Christian life is patience and waiting because that's a necessary form of faith in Jesus. You have to wait. We just have to wait. God is reminding us that we're not God. God's glorious end will come soon. Wait patiently. Wait actively. Wait by abounding in God's work of gospelizing and discipling non-Christians and Christians unto final salvation. Wait until the very last breath of your life. And church family, let's wait together. Don't just wait on your own. Let's wait together as a church family. Every Sunday, we wait for the coming of Christ. If you're not a Christian, don't wait. What I mean by that? Don't wait another day before calling on Jesus to save you. You don't know how long you have. Christians can wait because we have hope. You don't have hope if you're not a Christian. You have judgment coming. But, so don't wait. Call on the Lord to save you today. And lastly, so how do we joyfully prepare for God's judgment and salvation? By quieting our soul and listening to God, by seeking God together as a church family, by waiting for hope and waiting for judgment and salvation. And lastly, look at verse 14. Here's a sweet command. You thought we did this just because of church tradition, but we didn't. We don't. Verse 14, what's the command? Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Some of you sing too quietly. You're too self-conscious about hearing your own voice. Shout loudly. Sing badly, but loudly. Let, let others initially be distracted until they think, wait, that person was on their way to hell and Christ saved them. And now they're singing badly, but loudly for Jesus. Praise God. So if you're, if you're a bad singer, like I am, gotten a little bit better, but still really bad, Sing loudly anyways. Sanctify those around you with your bad voice. Sing loudly. Shout loudly. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Sing for joy, Bethany Baptist Church. Be glad. Look at verse 14. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Be glad. Sing. But why? This world is broken. Our church is broken. My life is broken. My heart is broken. Why would I sing for joy? Why can I celebrate? Here's why. Why can you rejoice in hope? Because, look at verse 15. The Lord removed your punishment. Are you going to hell? Is there condemnation for you? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. God's punishment is gone from you. Sing for joy. What's another reason why you should sing for joy? He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is among you. You need no longer fear harm. Why should you rejoice? Your enemy is gone. Your enemy is defeated. Why else should you sing for joy? PJ, I got a lot of pain in my life. There's a lot of pain in our church in this world. Why should I sing for joy? Here's another reason. On that day, it will be said of Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, here's why you should sing for joy. Because the Lord, your God, is where? He's among you, a warrior who saves. Sing for joy because God is with you. And here's a sweet one. I can't, I was thinking, Lord, how do I communicate this? I can't even communicate this. Um, I can't communicate the feeling of this enough, but listen to this. Here's why you should sing for joy and shout, for, shout loudly and celebrate. Here's why, even though your life is broken. Look at verse 17. The end of verse 17. 
Why should you sing for joy and rejoice in hope? Because God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. I love this next line. God will delight in you with what? Singing. I don't know another passage like this. God is singing about you. He's singing love songs over you. Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. God loves you. He sings over you. He delights in you. He cares about you. That's why we sing for joy. That's why we celebrate and shout loudly and sing badly. Because God sings over us. Maybe Isaiah 65, 18 and 19 comes close. Then be glad and rejoice in what I'm creating, God says, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. We sing, those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. Bethany Baptist Church family, God loves you. God desires you. That's why he saved you. Some of you don't like this line, but it's biblical. He didn't want heaven without you. So he brought heaven down. Christ came down because he wanted you. He loves you. He predestined you. He cares about you. He sings over you. God doesn't begrudgingly save. You know why God loves a cheerful giver? Because God is a cheerful giver. God didn't, didn't give Christ begrudgingly. Christ didn't save begrudgingly. Christ saved enthusiastically. For the joy that was set before him, he, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Here's another reason why you should sing for joy. Look at verses 18 and 20. Because you'll be gathered and vindicated and exalted. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. Here's why you should sing for joy. Because God says, I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. You know why you shouldn't pursue worldly popularity now? If God gives it to you, great. But you know why you shouldn't pursue it? Will you receive fame in the end? You're all going to be famous. That's what it says, right? In the end, God's people will receive praise and fame. Again, if you don't think that's true, look at verse 20. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise. God will give you praise. God will give you fame among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. God has promised to regather you, to vindicate you before those who criticize you and oppose you, and God will give you fame and praise. To use New Testament language, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may what? Exalt you at the proper time. God will exalt you. The New Testament even says this word. You can get this wrong if you, say, if you think of it wrongly, but it's true and it's biblical. God will glorify you. Now, everything's ultimately for his glory, not ours. It's a God-centered glorification. It's a God-centered exaltation. But you will be exalted. You will be glorified. And that's why we sing for joy and shout loudly. Now, one of the questions I wrestled with was, okay, wait, I got five kids. Lord Jesus, if you came right now, if the day of the Lord ended, I mean, the day of the Lord, if it ended right now and judgment came, are all my kids saved? I don't know. 
Do you have loved ones who aren't saved yet? Neighbors and family and friends who aren't saved yet? It's hard for me to just say, I'm going to sing for joy. I don't want Jesus to come back today because there are people I know that if Christ came back today would go to hell. And that's scary to me. How can we legitimately rejoice when some of our loved ones will receive eternal punishment? Here's my three sort of responses to help me and maybe help you rejoice. We don't really want God to be unjust for the sake of our loved ones, do we? We don't want God to compromise his righteousness and become unholy to save our loved ones and let them avoid the judgment. Do we want that? No, because God wouldn't be faithful to, to rejoice in. Secondly, we don't, want, we don't want people to have salvation apart from trusting in Christ and exalting Christ. Because if they don't get saved by trusting in Jesus, if they get saved apart from Jesus, then they're minimizing and belittling Jesus. And we love Jesus so much that we don't want anyone to be saved apart from Jesus. God won't save anyone apart from Jesus, but we shouldn't even want God to save people apart from Jesus because we love Jesus. He's our treasure. He's our joy. We want all glory to be to Christ. We don't want anyone to celebrate in the new earth without giving glory to Christ. And so, yes, even though we have loved ones, we don't want them to be saved apart from Christ. We'd rather take judgment for them. We'd rather let them have judgment and Christ be exalted than Christ be minimized and they um, step on him again. And lastly, another thing that might help a little bit, I understand that there's a tension. We shouldn't have full joy. We should feel torn. But although we want to work for our loved one's faith in Jesus and repentance from sin so that they could be saved, God also wants that. Um, But we can and we must and we will rejoice in God's just judgment in the end for those who reject Jesus. We gospelize, we lay down our lives, but in the end, who knows best? God knows best. And so we ultimately trust the wisdom of God as we lay down our lives to try to get our loved ones to trust in Jesus. But we still say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Yeah, we say it without the full heart because we have loved ones, but oftentimes that means for us we need to get off of our chairs and actually get out and start gospelizing and stop merely waiting as if we have all the time in the world because they don't have all the time in the world. If you're not a Christian, what is your greatest joy? Who is your greatest treasure? If it's not Jesus, I can guarantee you that you will be disappointed in your treasure. Church family, so I'm telling you, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. Church family, I already said it, sing loudly in our gatherings. Shout for joy, be glad, celebrate, express your hope, faith, and love in Jesus. Children, learn new songs to sing to the Lord. They will serve you well on your deathbed. Learn songs and memorize songs to sing to the Lord. Parents, let the joy of future hope be the dominant mood in your home. Is your household and marriage hopeful and joyful primarily because of the future hope? Not because it's easy, but because of the future hope. If you're single, hope in Christ's coming today. I used to say, God, don't come until I get married, you know. Um, And marriage is sweet, but it's not Jesus. Pray for Jesus to come today. Workers, students, work knowing that your labor will be rewarded when Christ comes. Do your job for God's glory. If you're a retiree, in your increasing internal and bodily aches and pains, keep rejoicing in your God. Keep hoping. He will exalt you in due time. You will have a resurrection body soon. For those who are discouraged, God loves to encourage and sustain you. If you're weak, God loves to be your strength. If you're stumbling, God loves to pick you up. If you're stubborn in your sin, God loves to soften your hard heart. If you're encouraged, God loves to keep you close to him. If you're strong, God loves to conquer Satan in and through you. Keep going.
So I close with the question again. How can we hope in God with joy in this broken world? How can we joyfully hope in God in this broken world? By quieting ourselves? By seeking God together in repentance? By waiting for the judgment to come? And by rejoicing in hope? Rejoicing in hope, the hope of Christ's return, the hope of the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. The world apart from Jesus is not hopeful, though they are wrongfully hopeful. They're actually hopeless and doomed. But we have this hope. I mean, you think about it, let's just go back to the beginning right here before I close. There's all these verses about everyone, not one person escaping judgment. Everyone will be wiped out by the wrath of God. And yet we have this hope of not only rejoicing, uh, not only avoiding judgment when Christ returns, but we actually have the, we have, the, we have the audacity to rejoice in the return of the Lord. Why? Why are we not scared of the day of the Lord, or the day of judgment? Why? Because the day of the Lord happened for us already when Christ was on the cross. On that day of the Lord, Good Friday, for Jesus, it was, let me quote Zephaniah 2.15, this was Jesus this was Jesus' Good Friday. Zephaniah 2, I'm sorry, Zephaniah 1, 15. That day, Good Friday, when Christ was hanging on the cross, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness. I mean, wasn't that what Christ was doing on the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why? Have you abandoned me? Because the day of the Lord started there on Jesus. He took the judgment. He took the damnation. He took the destruction. You don't avoid judgment. You already had it if you're a Christian. When Christ died and was judged, we were judged with him. When Christ rose from the dead that Sunday, that first Lord's day, we rose with him. And that's why we are not scared of the day of the Lord to finally finish because it already happened for us. The worst already happened. The best is yet to come. We are now saved, delivered, restored, and exalted to reign with Christ forever because he took the day of the Lord for us. So when he comes back to reign and judge, we come back to reign and judge with him and not be judged by him. So brothers and sisters, again, let us joyfully prepare for God's coming judgment and salvation. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. I'll give you 45 seconds here to pray on your own, and then I'll close our time. Father, we pray. We praise you that you're coming soon, Lord Jesus. And we pray 
that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here in Bellflower, here on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. And until you come, help us to quiet ourselves before you, to seek you together in repentance and faith, to wait for you patiently, and to rejoice and sing loudly. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.